0: Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to The Climate Report for Thursday, December 22, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Today's show covers some of the top items of good climate and energy news from 2022. Plus, we highlight the importance of your neighborhood in being climate aware. Please remember all Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvMR.org. So what are some of the things that we can celebrate over this past year? Let's touch on some of those brought to us by Reuters, the New York Times, as well as Inside Clean Energy, who had a nice little article listing the biggest wins in clean energy in 2022. You can forgive people who report on U.S. energy policy for being tired this month. They have just sprinted and sometimes slogged through an extraordinary year of action and progress at the federal, state, and even local levels. Said Autumn Proudlove, associate director for Policy and Markets, At the North Carolina Clean Technology Center at North Carolina State University, it's been a big one for sure, referring to this year. Not just a big one, but maybe the biggest one ever in terms of the number and scope of new laws and rules. She said, here are some of the key developments. The Inflation Reduction Act, of course. The United States has launched its biggest effort to combat the climate imbalance and the uh, President Biden signed the measure in August, following more than a year of ups and downs as it almost crashed and burned. Democrats finally coalesced around a proposal that could pass both the House and Senate after Senator Joe Manchin whittled away some of the clean electricity aspects of it. The law's climate and energy provisions include about $370 billion in new spending on an array of tax credits and incentives, designed to encourage the development of renewable energy, electric vehicles, and much more. We've touched on them in a previous climate report show. When looking at just a home, up to $14,000 worth of tax incentives and rebates are available for things uh, such as switching to electric heat pumps for heating and cooling. The law is loaded with industrial policy, with, industri- with incentives for companies to manufacture clean energy components within this country. So it's the whole pipe stream. It's not just incentives goosing us, the end users at the end and the purchasers, but also all the way upstream to the manufacturers and suppliers of equipment and the clean energy that powers the whole darn system. Said Corey Schroed, Legislative Affairs Manager for Climate at the Niskanen Center, a Washington, D.C. think tank that describes itself as politically moderate, the Inflation Reduction Act is, quote, certainly as big a step in the right direction as we've had in a long time. How long? He points us back to the Energy Policy Act of 2005, 17 years ago, signed by President George W. Bush as the last example of Congress passing a major energy law. At the time, that law contained more than $20 billion, in today's dollars, in energy-related tax incentives and substantial funding for renewable energy development and research. It also had incentives for biofuels and, yes, fossil fuels, which at the time, just like today's law, garnered criticism from environmentalists similar to the blowback to the fossil fuel friendly parts of this year's Inflation Reduction Act. So again... Put that in perspective, the last time there was big energy policy out of Congress, it was in 2005, and that time it was $20 billion. There are $370 billion in new spending for climate and energy provision, so almost 20 times the size. One takeaway, of course, is that Congress has an extremely difficult time passing energy legislation. This is because of the clashing interests of major industries and deep partisan divisions about what good energy policy looks like. The bills that do pass are often unsatisfying to advocates. But even with its shortcomings, the Inflation Reduction Act has provided funding and policy support that sets the tone for the remainder of this crucial decade. It's estimated that this act, uh, if people respond to its incentives, as expected and hoped for, that it will get the United States about two-thirds, maybe three-fourths of the way, towards our needs for reducing our emissions. That still leaves room for uh, additional action in both the individual community and business sector well fortunately that is happening there's a lot of action on the state level and we oftentimes don't hear about it because when it comes to energy and climate it's oftentimes a uh, national or international or we just focus on our own state but many other states are also like california increasing the amounts of renewable energy required from utility companies and setting those targets sooner and sooner. Examples as winds for this year are Massachusetts and Rhode Island in the northeast were among the states that passed major energy and climate legislation in 2022. The laws are indicative of a broader trend of states becoming more comprehensive and ambitious in their approaches to energy and the climate. It wasn't that long ago that state energy and climate laws were like federal laws in the sense that they set long-term goals that focused merely on a segment of electricity with very few details on actually following through. Now states are taking a more holistic policy approach rather than piecemeal policy actions, rather than just setting some goals and calling it a day. State laws are now more likely to consider how to make sure the goals are actually attainable and how to monitor progress. Also, states are accelerating their timetables for when the laws need to be showing results. It used to be politicians were satisfied by setting changes out in the mid-century at 2050. Since we're already halfway there and it shows we're not doing enough, states are upping their ante and accelerating their action and the dates pulling them forward. For example, this year's Rhode Island law says that 100% of that state's electricity use needs to be offset by the production of electricity from renewable sources by what year 2033. So they've got 10 years to do it. So uh, the timetable is short enough. The state needs to take major actions right away, which is different from states whose targets take effect in mid century. Proud love from uh, North Carolina State University sees these new state laws as evidence of a rising baseline of what now constitutes normal clean energy law, which will likely mean that other states will continue to follow suit as they adopt their first major climate and energy laws and as they strengthen what laws they already have. Other good news from 2022, of course, it can't go without saying that the shift to electric vehicles hits overdrive. Market share for electric vehicles is rising at a rapid pace which is happening at the same time that automakers and battery manufacturers are investing tens of billions of dollars in new factories in the United States to prepare for a near future in which EVs are indeed a mainstream product. The changes on the road and in companies' planning are being supported by new federal and state laws that provide incentives for both EV purchasing and the development of charging networks. In the Inflation Reduction Act that we just talked about, it includes billions of dollars for ensuring that there are charging stations installed every 50 miles along America's interstates. The Inflation Reduction Act also included a tax credit of up to $7,500 towards the purchase of a new EV and for the first time, a credit of up to $4,000 for the purchase of a used EV. Half of the credit for a new EV is subject to requirement that the battery also be produced in the United States or that the battery's raw materials are extracted or processed here or in a country with a free trade agreement with the United States. Now, while that is intended to encourage less reliance on China and more self-independence within the United States, and North America, it should be noted that trade negotiators from the United States and the European Union met just two weeks ago in Maryland with an agenda that includes the Europeans' objections to electric vehicle incentives that would not apply to models assembled in Europe. The sides have said they've made progress in their talks but so far failed to resolve the issue. EU leaders have said that these incentives under the Inflation Reduction Act are discriminatory, and have asked the United States to revise the law. The law has faced similar criticism from South Korea and its automakers after being placed at a disadvantage in the U.S. market, this according to Reuters. Back to uh, Inside Climate News with their recap, though. Um, they're saying that EVs, including all-electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, are now more than 5% of new cars and light trucks sold in the U.S. The share in the first quarter of this year was 5.2%, which was more than double from the prior year. So while the numbers might be small, um, doubling each year is an important multiplier. Matter of fact, for California's groundbreaking market, who tends to always be ahead of the curve, we are now at 18% of new vehicles sold in California are electric, That's four times the national rate. We're fast approaching one out of every five new cars and trucks being electric here in California. The transition to EVs is a crucial part of the broader shift to clean energy because it is visible in a way that other aspects of the transition are not. Um, When driving an EV, people can see it, and drivers are now seeing a lot more EVs and charging station. It is a very visceral realization of what's changing. More importantly, another great win for this year um, in state, federal, and international motion on environmental progress, there's an increasing emphasis on equity. State and federal energy laws are now more likely to include provisions that ensure low and moderate income consumers share uh, receive a share of the benefits. These carve-outs became more common last year and have continued in 2022. Across the board for clean energy programs, consideration of low-income customers and underserved communities is becoming a constant priority. One example is a new California law, the Community Renewable Energy Act, which uses tax credits, and other tools to expand access to subscription-based community solar programs and energy storage. It's now normal and even expected that major state and federal energy laws be written with consideration of spreading around the benefits. Here locally, we've seen this, Initially, there was a concern that solar electricity systems, for example, would just be the purview of the rich and wealthy. However, not only does Hospitality House local homeless shelter uh, run off of solar via a donated system, but they recently completed their transitionary housing complex, Brunswick Commons, and that, under state law, uh, comes solar-powered, so people making the step up into a home out of homelessness will be solar powered and then Cashin's field our new affordable housing development it is also solar powered so even uh, people processing and transitioning through a period of homelessness into home and into affordable homes um, everyone is now getting a slice of the solar pie here in california now speaking on solar pie we're going to stop here for a moment to touch on the fact that recently this isn't necessarily great news But it's good news if you're listening to this and are made aware. The CPUC did vote to proceed with brand new rules that would drastically change the economics for solar electricity here in California. In a nutshell, what has made the solar market so robust and the payback so great in California is the value of your solar electricity that you feed back to the grid when your meter's spinning backwards, for example, and you're not at home and you might have solar then the value of that solar electricity when your meter is spinning backwards must be equal to what they charge you for electricity. What that means is if you're paying high rates, then your solar is going to be credited at high rates. And as PG&E rates climbed, then the value of your solar climbs. And that's what's changing, and they voted to finally decouple that so that when a solar system's meter is spinning backwards, it will instead be worth wholesale power prices closer to $0.05 a kilowatt hour than $0.25 a kilowatt hour. Now, the good news for people considering solar in light of this new decision is the deadline is taking effect on April 13th, 2023. And the CPUC ruled with these new regulations that you don't have to have the solar system installed Before April 13th, you just have to have a contract in place and paperwork correctly and properly completed and filled out into your utility company by April 13th. So consider it a four month warning from the California Public Utility Commission. There will be people who this time next year will say, Why didn't anyone tell me that the rules might change? So now it is something that the media is going to talk a lot about. You have uh, until April 13th in order to beat this rule change. And any systems that are signed up for, merely signed up for, then they will be able to continue on today's legacy regulations. Any systems that are signed up after April 13th, the economics are going to be drastically reduced. We'll have more on this news in the future and how this might impact the solar market and the industry here in California. But back to the good news for 2022, offshore wind continued to move forward with the federal government taking steps toward allowing projects on the west coast and the Gulf of Mexico as well as several east coast projects that are close to construction. And then of course in an interest perhaps here in our local PG&E high fire threat area close to the station. This is news in Hawaii but it could just as well apply to us in Hawaii and elsewhere another point of emphasis for states was ensuring the durability of the electricity system in the face of extreme weather and other challenges so in Hawaii the state's largest utility has a plan now to spend 190 million dollars on making their grid more resistant to damage and ending on a bit of wonkiness uh, proud love from the uh Nevada sorry the North Carolina State University said that one of the major trends that she saw was states figuring out how to wake, how, ways to work more productively together with wholesale energy markets across state lines and regional grid operators. In Colorado, for example, several major utilities announced their intentions to join a multi-state market operated by the Southwest Power Pool, a grid operator. By joining together in the market, utilities will have greater flexibility to share resources, which should lead to greater efficiency and a decrease in cost. Changes like this one in Colorado are far from public view, but essential for managing the costs and the reliability of the energy system at a time of great change. And when it comes again to West Coast offshore, first ever West Coast offshore wind auction netted almost half a billion dollars so far, uh, these uh, companies have competed to win the rights to develop five sites off of Morro Bay down south and Humboldt County up north in California. And then lastly, in uh, some great energy news for uh, 2022, uh, it's been announced here at the end of the year that in running the numbers, it's expected that renewable energy as a whole will pass coal as the largest source of electricity generation on the planet by early 2025. That's just in a short two years, according to a new report from the International Energy Agency. So again, if you can sort of picture in your mind um, a uh, some sort of meter from zero to 100% renewable energy on the planet, um, it will be renewable energy will become the largest source of energy for electricity And uh, that's another bit of good news from 2025. Uh, Lastly, oh yes, two more bits of good news. Uh, Lula winning in Brazil is perhaps, uh, might be considered the top environmental news for the year, um, taking over the protection of the Amazon forest, which uh, degradation had been increasing at a huge rate. And then lastly, in noteworthy news, the U.S. has agreed to pay millions of dollars to move indigenous Native American tribes that are being threatened by climate change. The Biden administration will give three different Native tribes $25 million each to help move away from coastal areas or rivers. This is one of the nation's largest efforts to date to relocate communities that are facing an urgent threat from climate change. The three communities, two in Alaska and one in Washington State, will each get $25 million to move their key buildings onto higher ground and away from rising waters with the expectations that homes will follow. The federal government will also give eight more tribes, a smaller amount, $5 million each, to begin planning for relocation. Said Joseph John Jr., a council member in Newtok, a village in southwest Alaska where the land is quickly eroding, it gave me goosebumps when I found out we got that money. It will receive $25 million to relocate inland. He said it will mean a lot to us. He's a council member there in Newtok, the village, that will be given $25 million to move farther inland. The project, being funded by the Interior Department, is an acknowledgement that a growing number of places around the United States can no longer be protected against changes brought on by a warming planet. The spending is meant to create a blueprint for the federal government to actually help other communities, native as well as non-tribal, move away from vulnerable areas, according to officials. Last month, President Biden said on a Wednesday afternoon at a gathering of tribal leaders, there are tribal communities at risk of being washed away. The new funding, he said, will help tribes move, in some cases, their entire communities back to safer ground relocating a whole communities, sometimes called managed retreat, is perhaps the most aggressive form of adaptation to climate change. Despite the high initial cost, relocation may save money in the long run by reducing the amount of damage from future disasters, along with the cost of rebuilding after those disasters. After skimming through the top stories for positive news from 2022, we wanted to end with a couple of pieces on how important knowing your neighbors and your neighborhood is to being both climate aware and making more of a difference. This is a piece from The Guardian, followed by something from The New York Times. The Guardian says why knowing your neighbors could save you in the next climate disaster. Across the U.S., communities are relying on mutual aid as a safeguard against extreme weather. The article says when winter storm Uri hit Texas in February 2021, bringing single-digit temperatures and sheets of snow to Dallas, Susanna, Edith, and a group of volunteers distributed lentil soup and winter gear to unhoused people in their community. A lot of us had a sense of urgency and were called to action at that moment, she said. We were out in the streets while the storm was happening. Edith is the founder of Lucha Dallas a community-based collective that coordinated with other mutual aid groups in North Texas to bring food, warm clothing, sleeping bags, and tent warmers to their unhoused neighbors. They even raised cash donations to pay for hotel rooms for those who could not access shelters. Like millions of Texans across the state at the time, though, Edith's own household was without power and heat. The frigid temperatures, snow and ice, caused a catastrophic failure of the state's power grid. Within days, some 12 million residents lost access to safe drinking water. The disruptions disproportionately affected low-income communities and communities of color, and the consequences were deadly. The state's official death toll reached 246, but a BuzzFeed analysis found more than three times as many people likely died from the storm. Edith said she and her neighbors felt abandoned by the local government. There's no other means of survival for us, ia said. If we're not looking out for each other and helping each other, giving each other a hand, no one else is going to do it. Across the country, people are increasingly relying on mutual aid. Cooperative assistance adherents describe it as solidarity, not charity, to get through climate-related disasters. The practice is nothing new. Communities of color and other marginalized groups have long relied on mutual assistance when government services fell short. But now many frontline communities in the climate crisis are taking up the practice as well as a way to become more resilient in the face of increasingly extreme weather. Communities where neighbors check in with each other and have someone to call during a crisis are better prepared to face climate emergencies, according to a Tufts University study published in September. Researchers conducted interviews in two Boston neighborhoods that are at risk for flooding and heat waves. Over the course of six months, they found that the more connected people were with neighbors, church communities, and colleagues, the more likely they were to know about resources and services offered during extreme weather. Being socially isolated while trying to deal with an extreme weather event can be deadly, particularly for those who are more susceptible to dying from extreme weather. Now, to this end, they host community workshops on topics like preparing for extreme heat, where volunteers hand out cooling kits with water and cooling patches during the summer. But most importantly, it's been a way to bring people together. Social connectedness is allowing people to get to know each other that might not have known each other and also also fostering that spirit of collaboration. So when the storms come and the heat waves happen and the rain descends, people are looking out for each other. For Matt Peterson, a Queens-based documentary filmmaker, Superstorm Sandy revealed the importance of community in getting through a disaster. After Sandy struck New York City and flooded much of the coastline, He volunteered with Occupy Sandy, delivering supplies to hard-hit neighborhoods. He said, you expect all these infrastructural logistics to just work in America, in New York City, and then they shut down. They don't work. It was a wake-up call. Two years later, he and a dozen friends founded Woodbine, an experimental hub for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build community autonomy. They organize a farm share, offer yoga classes, screen films, and host lectures on topics including universal health care and climate disinformation. When the pandemic struck, Woodbine and the surrounding working-class neighborhood of Ridgewood mobilized. Volunteers distributed food at the center, made cloth masks, created flyers. The center's food pantry is now open twice a week, and on Sunday, they organize a donation-only dinner open to anyone in the neighborhood. A resilient neighborhood would have to be a neighborhood that knows each other, that knows who the people are, what their issues are, how to get in touch, how to communicate. The neighborhood network is in a better position if another disaster hits. Mutual aid is predicated on the understanding that everyone in a community has something to contribute and may need help at some point. Peterson said, We're not some special different tier of people that's just providing a service. We also are benefiting from all the resources and energies and skills and networks that other people bring. And then today we'd like to close with an interesting article from the New York Times that talks about the climate impact of your neighborhood mapped. New data shared with the New York Times reveals stark disparities in how different U.S. households contribute to climate change. Looking at America's cities, a pattern emerges Households in denser neighborhoods close to city centers tend to be responsible for fewer planet-warming greenhouse gases on average than households in the rest of the country. Residents in these areas, again denser neighborhoods closer to city centers, typically drive less because jobs and stores are nearby and they can more easily walk, bike, or take public transit. And they're more likely to live in smaller homes or apartments that require less energy to heat and cool moving further away from city centers average emissions per household typically increase as homes get bigger and residents tend to be forced to drive longer distances but density isn't the only thing that matters wealth does too of course higher income households generate more greenhouse gases on average Because wealthy Americans tend to buy more stuff, appliances, cars, furnishings, electronic gadgets, and travel more by car and plane, all of which come with related emissions. Take New York, America's largest city, provides the clearest example of these patterns. The densest and most transit-friendly neighborhoods near the city center run deep green with some of the lowest emissions per household in the country. But in more distant suburbs and exurbs, average emissions per household can be two to three times as high, simply because in many cases, folks in the city don't have cars or ever drive them. They have some of the largest climate footprints in the nation, though, just outside the city and the suburbs. But even in hyper-dense Manhattan, rich households on the Upper East Side have a bigger climate impact than their neighbors just a few blocks away. Because even if they don't have vehicles, they fly more, they have bigger apartments, and they buy more stuff. Now, that's all for today's climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at KVMR.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there is a climate Report social media page. And as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website podcast page, for sharing or relisting. For questions or comments, feel free to email climate report at kvmr.org.